Chapter Fourteen of A Mind That Found Itself by Clifford Whittingham Beers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Daly. Chapter Fourteen After being without relatives and friends for over two years, I naturally lost no time in trying again to get in touch with them, though I did heed my conservator's request that I first give him two or three days in which to acquaint intimates with the new turn my affairs had taken. During the latter part of that first week I wrote many letters, so many indeed, that I soon exhausted a liberal supply of stationery. This had been placed at my disposal at the suggestion of my conservator, who had wisely arranged that I should have whatever I wanted, if expedient. It was now at my own suggestion that the supervisor gave me large sheets of manila wrapping paper. These I proceeded to cut into strips a foot wide. One such strip, four feet long, would suffice for a mere billet doux, but a real letter usually required several such strips pasted together. More than once letters twenty or thirty feet long were written, and on one occasion the accumulation of two or three days of excessive productivity when spread upon the floor reached from one end of the corridor to the other, a distance of about one hundred feet. My hourly output was something like twelve feet, with an average of one hundred and fifty words to the foot. Under the pressure of elation, one takes pride in doing everything in record time. Despite my speed, my letters were not incoherent. They were simply digressive, which was to be expected as elation befogs one's goal idea. Though these epistolary monstrosities were launched, few reached those to whom they were addressed, for my conservator had wisely ordered that my literary output be sent in bulk to him. His action was exasperating, but later I realized that he had done me a great favor when he interposed his judgment between my red-hot mentality and the cool minds of the workaday world. Yet this interference with what I deemed my rights proved to be the first step in the general overruling of them by tactless attendance, and, in particular, by a certain assistant physician. I had always shown a strong inclination to superintend. In consequence, in my elated condition, it was but natural that I should have an excess of executive impulses. In order to decrease this executive pressure, I proceeded to assume entire charge of that portion of the hospital in which I happened at the moment to be confined. What I eventually issued as imperative orders were often presented at first as polite suggestions. But if my suggestions were not accorded a respectful hearing, and my demands acted upon at once, I invariably supplemented them with vituperative ultimatums. These were double-edged, and involved me in trouble quite as often as they gained the ends I sought. The assistant physician in charge of my case, realizing that he could not grant all of my requests, unwisely decided to deny most of them. Had he been tactful, he could have taken the same stand without arousing my animosity. As it was, he treated me with a contemptuous sort of indifference which finally developed into spite and led to much trouble for us both. During the two wild months that followed, the superintendent and the steward could induce me to do almost anything by simply requesting it. 
If two men out of three could control me easily during such a period of mental excitement, is it not reasonable to suppose that the third man, the assistant physician, could likewise have controlled me had he treated me with consideration? It was his undisguised superciliousness that gave birth to my contempt for him. In a letter written during my second week of elation, I expressed the opinion that he and I should get along well together, but that was before I had become troublesome enough to try the man's patience. Nevertheless, it indicated that he could have saved himself hours of time and subsequent worry had he met my friendly advances in the proper spirit, for it is the quality of heart quite as much as the quantity of mind that cures or makes happy the insane. The literary impulse took such a hold on me that, when I first sat down to compose a letter, I bluntly refused to stop writing and go to bed when the attendant ordered me to do so. For over one year this man had seen me mute and meek, and the sudden and startling change from passive obedience to uncompromising independence naturally puzzled him. He threatened to drag me to my room, but strangely enough decided not to do so. After half an hour's futile coaxing, during which time an unwanted supply of blood was drawn to his brain, that surprised organ proved its gratitude by giving birth to a timely and sensible idea. With an unaccustomed resourcefulness, by cutting off the supply of light at the electric switch, he put the entire ward in darkness. Secretly, I admired the stratagem, but my words on that occasion probably conveyed no idea of the approbation that lurked within me. I then went to bed, but not to sleep. The ecstasy of elation made each conscious hour one of rapturous happiness, and my memory knows no day of brighter sunlight than those nights. The floodgates of thought wide open, so jealous of each other were the thoughts that they seemed to stumble over one another in their mad rush to present themselves to my re-enthroned ego. I naturally craved companionship, but there were not many patients whom I cared to talk with. I did, however, greatly desire to engage the assistant physician in conversation, as he was a man of some education and familiar with the history of my case. But this man, who had tried to induce me to speak when delusions had tied my tongue, now, when I was at last willing to talk, would scarcely condescend to listen and what seemed to me his studied and ill-disguised avoidance only served to whet my desire to detain him whenever possible. It was about the second week that my reformative turn of mind became acute. The ward in which I was confined was well furnished and as homelike as such a place could be, though in justice to my own home I must observe that the resemblance was not great. About the so-called violent ward, I had far less favorable ideas. Though I had not been subjected to physical abuse during the first fourteen months of my stay here, I had seen unnecessary and often brutal force used by the attendants in managing several so-called violent patients, who, upon their arrival, had been placed in the ward where I was. I had also heard convincing rumors of rough treatment of irresponsible patients in the violent ward. At once I determined to conduct a thorough investigation of the institution. In order that I might have proof that my intended action was deliberate, 
my first move was to tell one or two fellow patients that I should soon transgress some rule in such a way as to necessitate my removal to the violent ward. At first I thought of breaking a few panes of glass, but my purpose was accomplished in another way, and indeed sooner than I had anticipated. My conservator, in my presence, had told the assistant physician that the doctors could permit me to telephone him whenever they should see fit. It was rather with the wish to test the unfriendly physician than to satisfy any desire to speak with my conservator that one morning I asked permission to call up the latter. That very morning I had received a letter from him. This the doctor knew, for I showed him the letter, but not its contents. It was on the letter that I based my demand, though in it my brother did not even intimate that he wished to speak to me. The doctor, however, had no way of knowing that my statement was not true. To deny my request was simply one of his ill-advised whims, and his refusal was given with customary curtness and contempt. I met his refusal in kind, and presented him with a trenchant critique of his character. He said, "'Unless you stop talking in that way, I shall have you transferred to the fourth ward.' This was the violent ward. "'Put me where you please,' was my reply. "'I'll put you in the gutter before I get through with you.' With that, the doctor made good his threat, and the attendant escorted me to the violent ward, a willing, in fact eager, prisoner. The ward in which I was now placed, September 13th, 1902, was furnished in the plainest manner. The floors were of hard wood, and the walls were bare. Except when, at meals or out of doors, taking their accustomed exercise, the patients usually lounged about in one large room in which heavy benches were used, it being thought that in the hands of violent patients chairs might become a menace to others. In the dining-room, however, there were chairs of a substantial type, for patients seldom run amuck at meal-time. Nevertheless, one of these dining-room chairs soon acquired a history. As my banishment had come on short notice, I had failed to provide myself with many things I now desired. My first request was that I be supplied with stationery. The attendants, acting no doubt on the doctor's orders, refused to grant my request, nor would they give me a lead pencil, which, luckily, I did not need, for I happened to have one. Despite their refusal, I managed to get some scraps of paper, on which I was soon busily engaged in writing notes to those in authority. Some of these, as I learned later, were delivered, but no attention was paid to them. No doctor came near me until evening, when the one who had banished me made his regular round of inspection. When he appeared, the interrupted conversation of the morning was resumed, that is, by me, and in a similar vein. I again asked leave to telephone my conservator. The doctor again refused, and, of course, again I told him what I thought of him. My imprisonment pleased me. I was where I most wished to be and I busied myself investigating conditions and making mental notes. As the assistant physician could grant favors to the attendants, and had authority to discharge them, they did his bidding and continued to refuse most of my requests. 
In spite of their unfriendly attitude, however, I did manage to persuade the supervisor, a kindly man well along in years, to deliver a note to the steward. In it I asked him to come at once, as I wished to talk with him. The steward, whom I looked upon as a friend, returned no answer and made no visit. I supposed he, too, had purposely ignored me. As I learned afterwards, both he and the superintendent were absent, else perhaps I should have been treated in a less high-handed manner by the assistant physician, who was not absent. The next morning, after a renewal of my request and a repeated refusal, I asked the doctor to send me the Book of Psalms, which I had left in my former room. With this request he complied, believing perhaps that some religion would at least do me no harm. I probably read my favorite psalm, the 45th, but most of my time I spent writing, on the fly-leaves, psalms of my own. As if the value of a psalm is to be measured by the intensity of feeling portrayed, my compositions of that day rightly belonged beside the writings of David. My psalms were indicted to those in authority at the hospital, and later in the day the supervisor, who proved himself a friend on many occasions, took the book to headquarters. The assistant physician, who had mistaken my malevolent tongue for a violent mind, had placed me in an exile which precluded my attending the service which was held in the chapel that Sunday afternoon. Time which might better have been spent in church I therefore spent in perfecting a somewhat ingenious scheme for getting in touch with the steward. That evening, when the doctor again appeared, I approached him in a friendly way and politely repeated my request. He again refused to grant it. With an air of resignation I said, Well, as it seems useless to argue the point with you, and as the notes sent to others have thus far been ignored, I should like, with your kind permission, to kick a hole in your damned old building and tomorrow present myself to the steward in his office. Kick away, he said with a sneer. He then entered an adjoining ward, where he remained for about ten minutes. If you will draw in your mind, or on paper, a letter L, and let the vertical part represent a room forty feet in length, and the horizontal part one of twenty, and if you will then picture me as standing in a doorway at the intersection of these two lines, the door to the dining-room and the doctor behind another door at the top of the perpendicular, forty feet away, you will have represented graphically the opposing armies just prior to the first real assault in what proved to be a siege of seven weeks. The moment the doctor re-entered the ward, as he had to do to return to the office, I disappeared through my door into the dining-room. I then walked the length of that room and picked up one of the heavy wooden chairs selected for my purpose while the doctor and his tame charges were at church. Using the chair as a battering-ram, without malice, joy being in my heart, I deliberately thrust two of its legs through an upper and a lower pane of a four-paned plate-glass window. The only miscalculation I made was in failing to place myself directly in front of that window, and at a proper distance, so that I might have broken every one of the four panes. This was a source of regret to me, for I was always loath to leave a well-thought-out piece of work unfinished. The crash of shattered and falling glass startled everyone but me. 
Especially did it frighten one patient who happened to be in the dining room at the time. He fled. The doctor and the attendant who were in the adjoining room could not see me or know what the trouble was, but they lost no time in finding out. Like the proverbial cold-blooded murderer who stands over his victim, weapon in hand, calmly awaiting arrest, I stood my ground, and with a fair degree of composure awaited the onrush of doctor and attendant. They soon had me in hand. Each taking an arm, they marched me to my room. This took not more than half a minute, but the time was not so short as to prevent my delivering myself of one more thumbnail characterization of the doctor. My inability to recall that delineation verbatim entails no loss on literature. But one remark made as the doctor sees hold of me was apt, though not impromptu. Well, doctor, I said, knowing you to be a truthful man, I just took you at your word. Senseless as this act appears, it was the result of logical thinking. The steward had entire charge of the building and ordered all necessary repairs. It was he whom I desired above all others to see, and I reasoned that the breaking of several dollars' worth of plate glass, for which later, to my surprise, I had to pay, would compel his attention on grounds of economy, if not those of the friendly interest which I now believed he had abandoned. Early the next morning, as I had hoped, the steward appeared. He approached me in a friendly way, as had been his wont, and I met him in a like manner. "'I wish you would leave a little bit of the building,' he said good-naturedly. "'I will leave it all, and gladly, if you will pay some attention to my messages,' was my rejoinder. "'Had I not been out of town,' he replied, "'I would have come to see you sooner.' and this honest explanation I accepted. I made known to the steward the assistant physician's behavior in balking my desire to telephone my conservator. He agreed to place the matter before the superintendent, who had that morning returned. As proof of gratitude, I promised to suspend hostilities until I had had a talk with the superintendent. I made it quite plain, however, that should he fail to keep his word, I would further facilitate the ventilation of the violent ward. My faith in mankind was not yet wholly restored. End of chapter 14